Yale Podcast Network. This is the Yale Environmental Dialogue, a podcast that is exploring solutions to a more sustainable future. Welcome to the Yale Environmental Dialogue podcast. I'm Oswald Schmitz, Professor of Population Community Ecology at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. In the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future, I examine how we, as humans, might achieve a vision of humankind and nature coexisting and working together across landscapes, um, and, and doing that in a way that ensures that all of nature, in which humans are an integral part, can be sustained. Today I'm joined by Eleanor Sterling, the Chief Conservation Scientist at the American Museum of Natural History's Center for Biodiversity and Conservation, and its former director. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, the, the essence of my, my article is really to try and get um, people to think more intimately about how they associate with nature and, and maybe try and get some humility um, about humans' engagement with nature. And it's come through the realization that there are a lot of conservation efforts that aren't succeeding, and it's partly because we're excluding people. So a lot of conservation nowadays gets done with the vision that um, humans have to be apart from nature. We need to protect and, and keep nature safe from people. And what that does then is sort of gives people um, a perception that you know, nature is just this trove of resources for them to use. Um, they have to negotiate, you know, with conservation organizations to um, be able to access those resources. But as long as we can um, put nature in protected areas with some semblance of, of species um, protected, then we can use the rest of the landscapes. But so what that does in the end is is actually uses up a lot of land space um, for human activities and isolates protected areas. And in an era of climate warming, um, in an area where we're rapidly um, expanding our use of natural resources, this can be problematic for preserving species and ecosystems and, and the very functions and services that, that we rely on. Um, especially in an era of climate change when species are going to be moving outside of these protected areas and, and trying to move to other places where they can cope better with, with the new thermal um, regimes that they, they have to uh, cope with. The issue, though, is if we have a built um, landscape between these protected areas, then it makes it very difficult for these animals and, and maybe even plants to migrate to these no, new locations. And so we, we actually, in our good intentions of protecting species in, in protected areas, actually potentially lead to their demise because they, they, they don't have the kind of resilience that we need to allow them to thrive across landscapes. And so what we have to do is take a more dynamic perspective of landscapes um, and, and, and create landscapes that, that potentially allow animals and plants to, to move uh, in response to um, changing climates. But that landscape is already, in many cases, heavily built up by human activities. And in order to allow animals to move or plants to move, we have to actually reconcile that or square that with what humans are currently doing on the landscape and what they have traditionally done on the landscapes. Um, and, and so we have to think harder. We have to think more inclusively about bringing people back into a vision of what a landscape is in terms of nature and humans living together. 
Now, Eleanor, you've you've done a lot of work in this regard. Um, you've thought hard about people and ecology, and you've you've done research at the at the nexus of humans and nature. Um, so, what, what what do you think about how we might go about doing that? How do we how do we sort of be respectful of human needs, but also be respectful of nature and conservation? That's a really important question. I, I think that what we forget <clears throat> when we're thinking about what to value and measure and talk about success. Uh, um, in economics, in conservation, in so much of what we do, we always try to reduce things to the smallest um, and easiest things to measure and the easiest things to report on. And frequently, those things are actually not the things that drive a system. And so we tend to teach in a and to learn and to function in these silos that I, I think um, your big idea is so important because you're making connections across across ecosystems, across space, across people in place, so that we have to learn about and function in ways that recognize those full systems and understand the feedbacks between people in place, between somebody's um, actions and the long-term future of biodiversity and then how biodiversity supports people and the ability of them um, to act or react in a particular place. I actually think that... Um, it's really fundamental for us to take a step back, to talk, try to take broader looks at things and to make connections and work with complications rather than trying to oversimplify them. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I, I like that perspective. Um, my, my, my reasoning has always been um, sometimes if we make the problem a little more complex, we can actually get a, a greater variety of solutions because we can see how one part of landscapes or one part of human activities is connected to the other. One of the, one of the stories I talk about in, in the article is, is um, in boreal forests of, of Canada where, where they're doing oil and gas exploration and, and the way they have to change the landscape to actually identify um, underground spots where oil and gas are um, requires changing habitats in a fundamental way that makes predators like wolves be much more effective uh, at at killing prey, which um, like caribou, which are are really vulnerable to open spaces, um, and so you know here's here's one example of one sector, oil and gas industry, not thinking about nature or not thinking about conservation, and and going around um, changing the landscape that profoundly alters and shapes what these species do. The downside of that is. Um, that these these wolves are preying on on a critically endangered species um, that that humans value quite quite tremendously and and so the conservation solution is to call the wolves and by calling the wolves though um, it releases other herbivores like moose and deer from predation and then they start eating up the vegetation um, vegetation that's important to the forestry industry and so you know conservation then is negatively impacting another sector um, uh, the the timber production and so you know the, the siloing that you mentioned can be really problematic and 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 what we need to do is is take a much more holistic perspective and and see how things are knit together and and carefully knit together um, and when when we go about doing our conservation planning we sort of have to think about the far-reaching implications of what our activity is going to do now where you work um, a lot of uh, uh, human communities 
um, tend to, you know, work on landscapes directly in terms of their livelihoods. Can you sort of tell us a little more about how people avoid the siloing in, in places where you're working and, um, you know, how, how, you know, they bring in culture, how they bring in different kinds of values to actually sort of have this more holistic perspective? Well, um, we work at the American Museum of Natural History at the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation. We work in many places around the world, but um, some of our recent work has been in the Pacific and in Pacific Island nations. And people we work with there don't separate uh, humans from nature. People and place and nature are all um, interrelated. So when someone dies, they become part of a forest around them, for instance. And when you go into the forest, you're walking through a space that's filled with your ancestors. And so that dualism that we have in Western philosophy about um, nature being separate and a solution being keeping people out, um, as, as in strict protected areas that, that, um, that somehow can, as you say, think that because you, you protect an area, even if it's getting smaller and smaller and becoming in this matrix of human domination, that, that somehow will work. It, it's not even a part of the philosophy of people that we work with. For them, you can't separate humans from nature. And so we take what's called a biocultural approach to thinking about resource management. And it's not really about counting how many fish there are in the ocean and how many individuals in a particular population. It's it's trying to understand what's important to people in a place, um, what's important to the functioning of the of the systems in that place, and what do we know and how do people pass on knowledge about managing those resources? And so for us, trying to um, to think about conservation planning or resource management, it's, it's not just trying to conserve endangered species, but it's about understanding the knowledge that helps you to recognize the place that those, those species have within a whole system. <clears throat> and, and figuring out who has that knowledge, who earned that knowledge, and how does one sustain the knowledge to, to effectively man- maintain and, and understand those individuals, those populations, those species, and the whole system. So, so one of the things I write about in, in my, um, my chapter is that we need a new way of valuing nature economically even and, and, and thinking about you know, the, the sum of all species in a, in a system and really ensuring first and foremost that, you know, we don't jeopardize the ability of, of any species to realize its nature or, or act according to its biological nature and fulfill its, its functional roles. Um, it's sort of more of an ethical perspective that we begin with. Um, but then when you're valuing what that offers, it's, it's more than just a natural resource that you can, you know, harvest and then sell in a, in a market. Um, it, it's also um, the, the environmental services um, that, that sustain nature and sustain humans as part of nature. And so what we need to do in th- instead of thinking about these as commodities or, or production of commodities, it's, it's the very production process that we need to preserve and value. And when we think about that, um, then we might actually back off a little bit um, in terms of how much we exploit nature, realizing that um, it would be wholly unsustainable if we remove some of these, these abilities to produce and, and um, uh, produce in a, in a perpetual way. And so the kinds of things I'm calling for, and this is with the help of economists that I've worked with at, at, in the school, is, is thinking about 
about, you know, sort of the dynamism of nature and, and valuing that rather than sort of just the stocks that, that nature produces. But it does require a different ethic toward nature. And, and I'm just curious, what, what lessons have you learned about Aboriginal people that you work with and, and communities that you work with in terms of the way they sort of, you know, inculcate this ethic or, or develop this, this ethic that you described earlier and which is something I'm trying to encapsulate, you know, sort of in terms of economic valuation and trying to marry those two a little more effectively. Um, so what is it that, that those cultures do that, that um, you know, sort of preserve this different idea and, and, and don't succumb to um, commodification of nature the way a lot of skeptical people say, well, if you give humans license to use nature, they'll just, you know, turn it into a commodity and, and try and become wealthy. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if um, it's, it isn't just the, the indigenous communities with whom I work, but it's also communities in many places around the world um, who have this strong connection to place and a, a strong connection to space and a strong self-identity. So people who identify as um, lobster fisher people or people who identify as <clears throat> wine growers, they fully recognize the critical importance of the knowledge that they have, the historical and contemporary knowledge that they have, the knowledge that they've gotten from um, previous people who've been working these spaces. They they see firsthand how how critical it is to recognize those relationships and that actions on the part of a, a manager, a person who's um, who's living in a space and using that space um, can significantly modify that space and that 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 space then supports them. And so I think people just constantly talk about connections. They're also really really focused in on food. And food is such a fundamental um, piece of place and a fundamental piece of that respect and ideal that people have about about what they want the, their place and space to look like. And so when I um, work and learn from people in other countries and cultures and guilds, um, the, the questions that I ask them are things like, you know, what what's important to you? What's important to you in this place, in this space? And immediately they start talking about relationships with others, relationships with the place, um, special moments in the place. And, and we don't emphasize that very much in the Western um, culture. We, we tend to ask questions like how much and how many and, um, and particularly to monetize things. And people really talk about very, very different values. And money seems to be pretty far down in the list. It's not because people don't need money. It's not because people don't respect the importance of money. It's just they have multiple values. And they emphasize and reemphasize those multiple values um, rather than trying to sort of find ways to bring all value into one currency. In, in the conservation movement, you see um, a tendency towards starting to think about this. But conservation is still about protecting and and then there's another sort of idea about engagement with nature, and that's management, where you're trying to minimize damages, but also try and exploit as much as you can, um, and and still try and sustain nature without really heavily damaging it. Um, those have been sort of the classic Western views on on sort of how to engage with nature, but there's a growing ethic. Um, called environmental stewardship, earth environmental stewardship. And, and what you've described to me seems like these, these uh, communities, these cultures really view themselves as stewards of nature and, and um, 
care and, you know, people who really care for nurturing nature, would, would that be a fair characterization or is stewardship even not really adequate? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we don't use, I mean, we just talk about the relationships. We don't really try to categorize or use terms, but I do think that stewardship is a fine, um, is a fine term for, 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 for me, it's that when we talk um, with people and we learn from people, we hear a lot about access to areas, access to um, resources, and the rights to be able to use those resources. But it's not necessarily ownership, uh, which again is sort of a Western understanding of rights. It's about who, who, who knows when and how to use this space, and then who has the responsibility for this space. So you almost never hear about discussions of rights or ownership or use without also discussions about responsibility. And so I think that responsibility is, is probably what you're talking about in terms of stewardship. And I'll give you a good example of the work we did in, in Solomon Islands. Uh, the communities with whom we were working needed to report to the government about how well they were managing resources. And uh, they were thinking through what was important to them in order to figure out what indicators they would share with the government about how things were going. And one of the things that women said was that the children weren't really learning about um, the recipes that they had learned from their mothers and that were some of their favorite local foods. And so they wanted to change that by developing a cookbook. So we worked with them to bring um, some artistic folks together with the, the people who knew about the resources. But instead of starting with, you know, take this ingredient, put it in the pot, stir it, here's your, here's your recipe, they actually started with their space. They, 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 the whole, the entire, the, the beginning of the cookbook is um, a description of a healthy place and where would you get ingredients from and how do you nurture or how do you steward that environment so you actually have the raw ingredients to do your cooking. You know, it, I don't know any cookbook in the United States that starts with um, the health of the environment. Um, and for me, that's this, this inherently biocultural approach. You recognize that you're never going to have a good meal at the end if you didn't take care of your environment in order to have the resources to be able to harvest, to be able to do the, the recipe. Do they, do they also show respect for the food that they're eating or, or the sources of the food, you know, in terms of this plant species is providing, um, you know, vegetation to eat or this animal species is an important source of protein? You know, do they, do they honor those sources of food as part of that culture? Absolutely. I mean, every, a different the different cultures are, are very different, of course, but there's so many, I mean, there's so many places in the Pacific where the foods are um, an older brother or an ancestor or um, a member of the family. And people know the the varieties that they grow in their garden very, very well. And they they have respect for them and their, their genealogy or their lineages in the same way that they do for people. Um, and they, they share information about where um, things came from and they understand those relationships in a really deep and important way and definitely show incredible respect for, um, for the foods that they're eating and have, have obviously have access to markets, definitely buy ramen, rice, other things in, in the um, foods and are doing that more and more than they used to, but they still, especially for what they grow and the resources that they're able to extract from a forest, for instance, they're very careful to, to think through when, how, and why, and um, be respectful of the, the forces that bring them the food that they, 
that they're able to eat. So the communities that you've described um, are intimately tied to nature. They have an opportunity to be intimately tied to nature. One of my big worries um, is the majority of humankind is going to be living in urban areas um, by mid-century um, and and becoming more and more separated from nature. And and some people would argue, well, that's a you know that's a good way to protect nature because you got you know people are going to be away. Uh, from nature, and then those those land spaces are going to be uh, free for non-human um, species to occupy. Uh, the problem with that kind of reasoning, though, is is you can't grow all the foods uh, within within an urban context. Um, and and so, one of the things I worry about um, from more of an ethical perspective is is how do we get you know, these growing urban populations to have these wonderful experiences that you've been talking about where people really have an intimate tie to nature. They um, have this connection. Um, does it, you know, should we really think hard about greening urban areas in, in ways that at least give some semblance, like bring nature into uh, urban areas or, um, you know, somehow teaching people to really understand where their foods come from and, 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 and building some sort of respect for that. Do you have any thoughts on, on how we might do that? Because I think that's a really important challenge for us now. Um, you know, in, in an era where we need to try and bring people together with nature, we're actually living more and further and further apart from what, what people would normally call wild nature. Yeah, I think that's fundamentally important. And all the things you've mentioned are critical. I actually truly believe that greening and getting people out in cities, um, even green roofs having smaller spaces that people nurture for food or for other um, other products on the roofs or, or um, the urban forests that um, are popping up in many places around the world, those are, those are fundamental. Getting people out of the city and into nearby spaces, having people learn from and respect um, farmers who are producing their foods, getting them into environments that may not be in the urban centers, but but really connecting them up with the people who are fishing, who are farming, who are producing the, or, or gathering the foods that, that they're eating and getting people, you know, sort of beyond the grocery store in their, in their vision for what the chain is. So again, that's more more thinking, more learning, more teaching in a systems perspective. So you really understand um, the basis for life, for human life on earth and getting people to really appreciate that I think is fundamental. And some of that is, is experiencing it themselves, but some of that could just be learning from others, um, who, who are, who are rooted in a place who are uh, fundamental to that place and, and getting that connection with the, those, those individuals and learning, learning from and with others, um, who have a very different perspective of their very different relationship to land and place. Yeah, no, it's it it is interesting because um, um, you know I think about the organic movement or or the community uh, serviced agricultural movement where where people do appreciate that and and it gets back to what you were talking about earlier where you know people who subscribe to these opportunities really do feel like there's an important connection to sustaining and maintaining the earth and and the the health and welfare of the earth so that they get to produce the kinds of foods that are going to be healthy and and um, um, uh, moving away from um, industrial agriculture just exclusively as a as a food source, um, which is interesting because it it may be a way that that people reconnect with nature, especially if if we could promote more um, sort of you know um, 
farmers markets and things like that where people can um, go and talk to the farmers and, and, you know, have an intimate conversation about where this food came from and how they raised it and, and build something a little more like that. You know, the issue is always, again, you're not, you're not necessarily going to maximize your economic return, your profit. And people always say, well, it, you know, organic farming or market gardening, gardening is, is, a, is a hard life, which it is. But it's also maybe a fulfilling life. Um, and maybe that's something else we have to think about is, is you know, life fulfillment um, isn't necessarily always about maximizing income. It may be actually um, accepting or willing to have less income for a more healthful living, less stress, you know, better quality food, um, fewer diseases and health issues. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, do you find sort of these health indicators among um, the kinds of communities that you work with? We find those health indicators everywhere. We're, so we use the term well-being to talk about those health indicators, and we actually use a multidimensional vision of well-being. So it's not just human well-being, but it's environmental and human well-being as one space or one unit. And and we've spent a lot of time on that, thinking through, well, what does well-being look like? And it turns out that the economic... Um, uh, when when people decide to to really focus in on the economic issues, it can really crowd out other um, values and other other ways of thinking about well being, and then, in the end, really impoverish people. Um, strangely enough, and so we we've been um, looking across the world, and there's some pretty exciting um, work out there happening. A lot of people say to me, well, gosh, it's it's a lot easier to measure things in relation to money, and why don't we just figure out ways to talk about human happiness and put a monetary um, number to it, and then we can compare it across the world and things. And the thing that we're finding is that um, it's not as hard as people think it is to figure out ways to measure other other important char- characteristics of, of well-being beyond the monetary and there are whole societies that are doing that. So in Vanuatu, they have something called the alternative. Well, actually, now they're, they're well-being indicators. They, we all don't think they should be the alternative. They should be the main indicators yeah. of well-being and grounded in the culture of that place and in their custom economy, which in some ways is about exchange. It's about sharing. It's about knowing that there's somebody there for you in times of need. Um, there are also three other governments that are starting to take that up right now, which is the um, New Zealand government just uh, just is promulgating the well-being budget. So across their ministries, they have to show that the decisions that they're making and the plans and, and priorities that they're strategizing do not have a negative impact on other, other ministries and on human well-being. Um, they're doing the same thing in Iceland and also in Scotland. So pretty exciting things are happening in this, and it's becoming less and less some twinkle in somebody's eye or some unmeasurable outside force and really being something that governments are embracing, understanding that, that entwinement across sectors, as you said in your, in your um, chapter, um, are fundamentally important, and we need to recognize we can't just maximize for whatever the one thing is that we're responsible for in our ministry, but we need to be thinking across um, across the board, across a country, across a place, across a space, um, how one decision has ripple effects in other parts of that space or place. And, and along those lines too, um, 
you know, something I write about in the book is is that it's it's we can't just solely rely on governments to do this top down work. We have to actually think about communities of people doing things bottom up and taking ownership and responsibility and 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 and, and you know um, um, employ some of those lessons that you've talked about with with the communities that you're working with, where everybody contributes and takes ownership and responsibility. And to the extent that governments tend to be reactive. Um, you know, having having people really feel enfranchised and empowered to to help out and and contribute to problem solving, I think is is a really really important way to go forward. And and we you know have to start thinking about, you know, how do how do we get organizations or institutions to to enable local communities and 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 people to be part of this. I so agree with that. But one thing I think we should all be careful about is not saying top down and bottom up because it means that we have this hierarchical vision that top is good and bottom is not yeah. and yeah, so so we we, t- we we talk about community out or you know other ways of thinking about it so that we don't really reinforce not to be corrective but just to say we should be you know really mindful of our language in 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 how we think about things so we don't give too much power to to organizations and entities that are slower to react as you say yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we've been talking about my vision. Um, you know, in closing, I was just wondering, do you have a, a vision to offer that, that, you know, relates to the topic we've been discussing? You know, do you have, what what would your vision be for for um, a big idea for sustaining humans and nature? To be honest, it's, it's what we were just touching on. I really think that multidimensional well-being where people are aware of what makes them happy? What makes them healthy? What makes them function effectively? What makes them a part of a community? What's a part of a system, no matter what scale, as you were saying? I think we need to spend a lot more time exploring that, getting people comfortable with recognizing, as you said, that um, there's so many different ways to to be healthy um, beyond your, your fiscal health, beyond how much money you have and how much happiness that money can buy. I mean, there's some really great work that's done at Yale and other places that's showing that the, that the money piece of well-being is such a tiny part of it, and yet it's it's what is reinforced over and over within our families, within our communities, within our political systems. And so really exploring and, and promoting a broader definition of a multidimensional definition of well-being, I think, is a really uh, good direction, which builds off, of course, what you're already saying. My my vision. I, I I tend to be hopeful. I don't I don't um, um, feel uh, you know uh, disparaged by by what's happening in in the world. I think people, you know, um, are going to roll up their sleeves and and make a difference. Um, do you share that? Oh, I go up and down. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, we need to recognize that there are bad things happening in the world and that we need to come together to counter those bad things and that, the, that we're in a negative trend right now in terms of our stewardship of biodiversity and that that can have long and long-term implications for our children. So I, I am hopeful because I do believe that we'll, we will um, come together, but I'd like to think that we can come together before a really... There have been a lot of a lot of catastrophes already, and they haven't seemed to spur the action that I would have hoped. But I I just hope that people can find ways to recognize their role and come together to fulfill those roles. Well, I certainly hope we, in in this little conversation we've had, um, 
have offered some insights on how we might go about doing that and at least have a vision for some change in thinking and, and change engagement in, in engagement um, with nature so that we could potentially realize um, a new way of thinking and a new way of living on this planet. Um, and with that, Eleanor, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been a fun conversation. Yes, thank you. It's been great. The Yale Environmental Dialogue is produced by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Music is by Ben Cosgrove. <laughs>